one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space Episode 515 for the week of Monday, May 13th, 2013. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey there, Sawyer. Busy night and uh, after a very interesting weekend, no doubt, and can't wait to go ahead and share some info with everybody. Yes, indeed. Same here and welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Good to be here. And we're glad that you're here listening with us on a pretty interesting human space-filled and other space-filled night. And let's get things started off right away with some news that's going on as we record, in fact. And that is the return of the Expedition 35 crew. The crew, which launched back in the cold, cold 2012, are now on their way back to Kazakhstan, and that crew consists of NASA astronaut Tom Marshburn, Roscosmos astronaut uh, Roman Romanenko, as well as everyone's favorite Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield. They've had an interesting stay aboard the station, including an interesting scare this past weekend, which we'll talk about shortly, but Expedition 35 is coming to a close. Yes, so far so good, Sawyer. Last time I uh, saw as we were recording this, we were about maybe 30 minutes away from landing. The It, it looks like that the separation of all three, uh, you know, all three of the modules are, is, is undergoing. Last time I heard, um, the orbital module was getting ready to depressurize and, and things were moving along rather smoothly. It's a, a kind of a really interesting reentry as opposed to what we're used to with uh, with shuttle. Um, I believe one of the astronauts I recall, and I forget exactly who it was. Uh, we were just <laughs> we were discussing this actually just today um, at the um, uh, during the uh, our little little look back at STS one thirty two, and somebody had, was 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 kind of describing what the, the Soyuz entry is like as opposed to the shuttle. And somebody described it um, as a bus wreck followed by a rear-end collision. Um, that's, that's the best way one could, could go ahead and put it. Uh, uh, it. It doesn't land the same way as shuttle, obviously. The shuttle kind of did this nice little graceful touchdown at the uh, landing uh, strip at uh, at the Kennedy Space Center. This is completely different. The Soyuz, first off, is a, is a way different critter. It was designed back in 1967 as a two-person vehicle for the moon. It essentially has three modules. One, one a uh, an orbital module, which is essentially just a, a small, almost the size of a small closet, just about. But it's another place where you could go ahead and sort of creep into and just sort of hang out while you're while you're on orbit, as the as the name implies, in the middle is a sort of a, a bell shaped uh, descent module, which is by the way where the crew sits for launch. Um, so so this is sort of like the 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 business area of the uh, of the Soyuz spacecraft, and toward the back is what's called an instrumentation module, uh, this, the which extends two sol- which has two solar panels at at either end of it. That's basically where your propulsion, the life support, and all that is is sort of gathered over there. Um, during reentry, those three mo- th- those three modules kind of sort of separate from each other. And then the uh, the descent module begins its its reentry. That it has two parachutes to slow itself down. One drone drogue parachute to sort of get the get things uh, slow, slowed up a bit. And then the main chute unfurls a, a few minutes later. And then Soyuz kind of sort of drifts down, and uh, and then 
has a semi-propulsive landing. The there are small there are small little retro rockets in the uh, in the descent module that kind of sort of just sort of let it slow down a bit before you before you hit land. But it, it it's a uh, from what uh, astronauts have described it that you know we've we've talked to here. Um, it's it's not exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the most uh, uh, welcoming way to come back to Earth, but it's. Uh, uh, I guess any landing, and Mark, you'll 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 uh, you'll probably agree. You work in aviation. Any landing you walk away from is a good one. So, uh, this crew has uh, distinguished itself. It uh, especially Chris Hatfield. Uh, he's become sort of a uh, an internet sensation, if you will. Uh, because he's he's basically lifted the veil. A lot of these astronauts have done that, but Chris Hadfield's kind of done it in, a, in an extraordinarily unique way. And uh, he's really, really tried to get the public enthused about the International Space Station and about spaceflight in general. And he's really, really you know pulled the veil back and really taken a nice little tour and of the station, but also discussed uh, a few things, you know, about can you cry in space? Well, the answer was obviously, yeah, but it's not a good deal. You know, just little, little things, you know, little, little day-to-day things that, you know, everybody ha- does down here that, uh, well, you have to do a little differently in, in microgravity conditions. And he's kind of lifted that veil and, and kind of let us all peer into sort of a day in the life of the ISS. Uh, I just looked recently at a lot of folks, and a lot of folks hope that after uh, 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 Chris Hadfield lands that he doesn't stop posting and talking about his experience on the ISS. So uh, time will tell on that one, but I'm, I have a funny feeling that he'll probably continue to share that experience for as long as people want to listen. Yes, indeed, and keep in mind going along that with Chris Hadfield, today on today's date, May 13th, a video of Chris Hasfield made it once again to the front page of YouTube, except this was the what is being called the first ever music video recorded entirely in space, and that was his rendition of Space Oddity about departing the International Space Station. As well as, on top of that, if you were to check his Twitter bio as of this recording date, it will probably change by the time this comes out, but his current location is, quote-unquote, in a Soyuz. <laughs> Yeah, he he had some very interesting. There was a, a BBC article today also that had some very interesting comments to make about the current state of affairs of uh, of, of spaceflight. He he kind of said that we're, we're you know, and I'll quote him directly from the article here. Uh, again, this is from BBC News, dated uh, May twelfth. We will go go to the moon. We will go to Mars, but we're not going to do it tomorrow, and we're not going to do it because it titillates the nerve endings. We're going to do it because it's a natural human progression. It's a process. We're not trying to make front page news every day. We're not planning to plant the flag every time we launch. That's just a false expectation of the low attention span consumerism, which I found very in, a, a very interesting way of looking at it. He's, he's kind of saying that we're slowly evolving in space um do i kind of agree with with some of that well yeah but the true space flight is not all about headlines and so on but uh you know you have to make the commitment too and uh, i think that's also what chris hatfield is trying to say here that uh, we have to make that commitment to to that to that progression or else we're not going to go anywhere so uh, some interesting words here you're not kidding, because you hear most NASA astronauts speak, and they get asked the question about the future of manned space flight, and it seems like about 99.99% of them follow the typical NASA-given response of, well, here's what we're planning on doing, and here's NASA's goal for the future, and NASA's not shutting down, and if you've heard an astronaut speak, you've probably heard the speech before. Canadian Space Agency seems a little more laxed about that, especially since when it comes to the future of where NASA is going in space, Canadian Space Agency is kind of there to help, but it's not really their job to decide where they're going and to pay for it. Well, we've you have to remember too, compared to Canada, you know, the the United States and you know the 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 Russians are are kind of the you know the the proverbial eight hundred pound gorillas in the room. Uh, we're well right now. Russia is the only one that uh, has a, a 
you know, a uh, piloted spaceflight capability. We are working on, let me see, one, two, three, four of them here in the United States. Uh, but the one question that was asked, and 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 Sawyer, you kind of hit on something that was also asked in this article. Um, what, for example, did uh, did uh, Chris Hatfield think of the future of spaceflight? And uh, this was a quote when uh, the author of this particular article asked him uh, if he thought astronauts would ever leave low Earth orbit again and go back to the moon, or perhaps go on to Mars. Um, he had a very well, he seemed almost irritated hearing the term going back. He said, quote, that's really a self-defeating way of posing the question because you say get back to or ferrying back and forth. Um, he said, we're leaving the earth permanently. It's, it's a huge historic step and we're trying to do it right. And that takes time and it takes patience and it takes tenacity, but we're going to do it. So um, he, he kind of sees us you know, being at, sort of the embryonic stages, even though we've been in this business for about 50 years. Uh, and uh, it, will, it will, in his eyes, it, it is just a slow, steady progression as far as where we're going in the future. So we are going to hit Mars, we are going go to go to the moon, but it's, we need to, to do it in a methodical way. I think that's what, what he's... he's uh, He's referring to and and yeah, sorry, maybe you're right. I mean, I'm I'm still of the ilk too that you know when I first read that, I, I the first thing that that popped into my head though was the end of uh, one of uh, John Kennedy's speeches. I believe it was the 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 famous May 25th speech that we're coming up on the anniversary of here. Basically, he asked, uh, you know, but some say you know rest and wait. I said the the city of Houston, the state of Texas, this country, the United States, was not built by those who waited and rested, in which to look the eyes of it, and and uh, uh, I, I kind of maybe maybe you're right, maybe it is is just sort of a, a different way of looking at, at things. I, I'm I'm sort of, of of the Kennedy school, where I think you know, okay, fine, you know, you don't wait, you don't don't rest, you you move, you do, and. Uh, I think, I guess, judging in retrospect, I think they're both trying to say the same things, but in a very different way. Yeah, exactly. But, but you know, it, it's an interesting prospect of looking at different countries' views on where NASA should go. And we'll talk more about this in our third segment of the show. We'll get to some listener comments on that. But it, it's just interesting seeing because you've got all the people in America and their thoughts of it. But then you've got Canadian astronauts and people over in Europe and even Roscosmos, you know, they have a different view of what NASA should do. Because uh, honestly, in my opinion, if I was Roscosmos, I'd say keep debating, keep taking your time because now the cost of a Soyuz seat keeps <laughs> going up. So we make money off of it. Well, yeah, I mean um... – we, we've got to wake up here in, in the United States. We have to go ahead and say, all right, are we going to go ahead and, and continue this commercial crew program? I personally was not a, a huge fan of, of something that was essentially Plan B becoming Plan A. Um, but uh, uh, here we are. And in my opinion at this point, that is probably our best bet to get, in, to get uh, uh, U.S. astronauts uh, – launched from u.s soil and uh because now we we've we've put our eggs all on that that horse so uh we've got to go ahead and 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 follow through and uh at this juncture that is our quickest venue and i know i've got fairly good faith in sierra nevada i have good faith in in boeing i've got good faith in spacex that they're going to build good vehicles to to get us to do that, the question is again, as we've debated here last week, um, the funding for that. And uh, the problem is, right now, I don't think Congress is fully convinced that uh, uh, commercial crew is the way to go. Because I, I kind of think that those in Congress, or or at least that that are still there, uh, when this whole thing was first first uh, proposed, may be in a bit of a snit. I think uh, uh, I think uh, Dr. John Logston basically said the same thing. Uh, because they were not uh, briefed and they were not uh, brought in on the decision-making process uh, to scrap the Constellation program. And uh, this is, I think, one of the – this is sort of the, the, the backlash 
of that uh, of that decision of the Obama administration not to go ahead and consult Congress uh, to making such a such a big change of uh, of, uh, of steps. So uh, as long as that. I guess as long as this administration is in power, that they're they're just going to be going ahead and nickel and diming this program. But uh, like it or not, right now it's our only shot. Um, to but Sawyer, to, to add a little bit more fuel to to the fire, there uh, there was an article I guess in the uh, Global Post uh, dated also May twelfth that uh, into saying that no Canadian is going to be visiting the International Space Station after Chris Hatfield leaves before 2016 and this is coming from uh uh the uh the CSA uh interim head uh, Giles Leclerc of uh of the Canadian Space Agency. He said there probably won't be another Canadian traveling to the station for at least another 3 years. Um right now Canada does, does not have a slot for another astronaut on the launch manifest of NASA before 2016. He said in in this particular interview. Um so Again, that might just reflect, as you said, the sort of laid-back approach um, that uh, that you had mentioned that you kind of sort of are getting from from Chris Hatfield. Even though NASA isn't the largest funded part of the U.S. government, it's still a you know big part of who America is. When you think of space, the first thing that most people around the world think of is NASA. So for a little agency like Canada, you know, Canada's Canadian Space Agency it's pretty impressive that they've actually managed to get Chris Hadfield and he's made such a big impact because they, they flew, they're treating him like a national hero so far over there. And honestly, rightfully so. So in 2016, I think it's going to be hard to beat Chris Hadfield, but I, I still think that, you know, two astronauts already with no shuttle flying, only relying on Soyuz seats, which aren't cheap. is still a pretty good deal. Yeah, they're, they're doing their Well, they're doing their best as, um, they said the ISS, the article goes on to say, uh, and again, quoting the clerk here, uh, the ISS is a big cooperative. You get in return what you put into the program. And right now, he said, we still have some credits left, but we have to accumulate those credits. Um, between 2016 and 2019, that will probably be the window where they're going to have, have, have accumulated enough. And you have to remember, too, this is the country that built uh, you know, Canada Arm, which is now resting in a museum. Um, the uh, Canada Arm Two, which is sitting on the ISS right now, and they're 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 pretty committed to to space flight. So yeah, you can't say they haven't done anything for the space station. That's for sure. Obviously, great to see their impact, and great to see other countries getting in. Because I mean, you s- normally hear the same old countries and the same old agencies getting in. You hear NASA, you hear Russ Cosmos, and sometimes you'll hear ESA thrown in there, a little bit of JAXA. But it's honestly great to see Canadian Space Agency getting some crew up there. So, an uh, early congratulations to the crew of the Expedition 35 aboard the Soyuz TMA-07M for a great mission, and launching in a couple weeks should be the next part of Expedition 36. So, their stay aboard the space station was not completely uneventful, especially this past weekend, as an old issue popped its head back up again, except this time with a little bit of a vengeance. And that involves the P-6 truss aboard the International Space Station, which holds some of the solar panels, and a little bit of an ammonium leak, right? Well, yeah. Um, I believe, sir, check me, this was Thursday uh, that the ammonia leak was re- was reported. Uh, Chris Hadfield had a rather, rather uh, laid-back report to radio down to the Mission Control Center. Houston Station, uh, I was, this is Chris on Space to Ground 1. And uh, we were seeing wheels. I was back in uh, the docking compartment looking. Sounds like, uh, just talking to Dom and Chris here, sounds like it backed up completely, but they saw a very steady stream of, uh, of um, flakes or bits coming out of, uh, coming purinator and then rotating towards the forward, uh, you know, as the, uh, as the truss is rotating. So, and uh, we're just waiting for it to rotate now or we can get a decent view out of the gym. So having snow around the area <laughs> was not really what you wanted to see. It was probably not exactly the way uh, Chris Hatfield wanted to end his stay on the International Space Station. So, uh an impromptu EVA was planned uh, within you know within days, and you have to really really give it to to the folks over at the Johnson Space Flight Center. They went ahead 
and plan this, this impromptu uh, EVA within you know, you know almost hours. Just about they had the procedures ready for the crew to re- for the crew to review. And uh, Saturday morning, they went out on a five-hour um, EVA to go ahead and and uh, repair the the issue. Um, so so you really have to have to give them a a, a huge huge round of applause uh, for the folks on the ground. Uh, now, grant you. This is probably one of the the uh, EVAs they do practice a lot. One of the one of the twelve, I believe, there's about twelve contingency EVAs that they practice here on the ground. And the two astronauts that were involved in this one, uh, this particular EVA, Chris Cassidy and Tom Oshburn, they had worked together in EVAs before. They had worked extensively on EVAs during STS-127. So they kind of knew each other. They knew their moves. They knew what they were going to do and so on and so forth. So if uh, this this uh, pump, which they thought was, was the issue, uh, had to go awry, uh, this ammonia pump, um, it was probably the best time to do it because you had basically two – uh, crew members that were able to to really really get into an EVA and and really really read each other during that so because that's kind of critical so they figured that the, they were hoping that that somehow or other uh, this ammonia pump was was the was essentially the smoking gun in fact um, if you actually see the uh, the the videos from this you actually see a, a nice stream of ammonia flakes going by. And uh, that's that's really not not all that good when you see that. Um, they also expected that when they pulled this pump away from the P6 truss, that there would be you know sheets of ammonia underneath it. So they were preparing for that contingency as well. Now the good news is in sunlight, the ammonia sublimates like that, so um, it, it would it would be really 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 fast to get rid of. But still, you know, what do you do when you have this? big ice chunk of ammonia hurling at you so you've got so they were trying to you know prepare for for all kinds of contingency uh procedures the lucky the lucky thing is when they went ahead to remove the what they gave the go to remove the the what they thought was the errant pump um and replace it with one of the two spares that they have on board they lifted the pump out and lo and behold there was no you know real ammonia traces in and around that area uh, so uh, they went ahead, removed the old pump, put in the new one, and uh, called it a day. Now, did that fix the problem? We don't know right now. We still don't know. Um, it stopped. It stopped snowing on board the ISS. But uh, um, <laughs> had was this was this really the smoking gun? We don't know. We've got to go ahead and take a look at uh, understand the system with the new pump. And see uh, see what uh, see what how that whole thing behaves uh, during this whole thing, and uh, sort of sit there and and really really analyze the data and and probably won't be for another few weeks really until uh, NASA says yep that was the problem and this this area too I think has a long history of uh, of problems I think the the problems there started about two thousand seven. And uh, the irony, too, is when this whole ammonia situation kind of sort of reared its ugly head, um, Chris Hatfield was the one who reported it to the ground uh, the, with, with some very interesting irony. Uh, Doug Wheelock was the uh, uh, Capcom on duty. And uh, if, if folks remember, uh, he had to go ahead and deal with a similar ammonia leak problem. On his and uh, on when he was the commander of the ISS, so uh, uh, yeah, we've got. <laughs> so I I just thought that was interesting symmetry, and it was it was uh, good to have somebody on console who kind of understood uh, really what was going on and had been there, uh, and and really really could could kind of say, yep, all right, we'll we'll go ahead, we'll take a look at this and. And really understand understand the problem because he's he's been there he's he's had that 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 t- kind of issue. Exactly. When I was watching the spacewalk, the EVA, I, I thought of two in particular. I thought of the one you're talking about with Doug Wheelock and his mission, but I also thought of STS-120. If anyone remembers that, which was oh, yeah. the ripped solar panel going out to the trusses. So the those two were ringing true in my mind as I was watching that unfold. The actual spacewalk on Saturday. 
Yeah, and that was a that you know, forgive me for I, I almost had to check myself. That was a, a that that took uh, some doing on on Scott Parazinski's part uh, to have to go ahead and deal with that uh, that solar panel tear because we're we're you know you're, you you've got a you still have an electrical hazard there. So, oh, gosh darn it! Right, that one you've got an electrical hazard. This one you have an ammonia contamination hazard. So, none of these are easy. That's for sure. The whole situation really, really showed how agile uh, uh, the folks, not only on the ISS, but also on the ground supporting uh, activities on board ISS really are and how quickly they can respond to, uh, to a situation. So, again, hats off all the way around. Indeed, and talking about that, keeping in mind, um, astronaut Luca Parmentano, who'll be going up on Expedition 3637, mentioned that in his time up there alone, he will have two U.S. spacewalks and five Russians. So they're keeping busy out there outside the station. All right, and just before we stray away from our ISS news in our first segment here, just want to welcome back officially to Earth our three astronauts aboard the Soyuz TMA-07M, who safely, quote-unquote, gently... Touchdown! <laughs> yeah, at, you can see that plume from the from the uh, uh, from from the video. So, wow! I mean, you could actually see that. It's 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 just amazing. Yeah, sometimes you could see the uh, the thrusters firing to slow down a little bit, but this one it, the camera's a little too far zoomed out, so you couldn't quite tell. But nonetheless, the landing successfully occurred at ten thirty one. PM Eastern Time, which for our overseas listeners, this is something we're going to attempt to start doing now, and please feel free to correct us if we don't do it, is also 2.31 UTC. Alright, so with that successful landing here in our live time, you can tell when we're recording this obviously then, but continuing along, we are now ready to move on to our second trip around the table, and for the second trip around the table, we're going back to our regular 1-2-3 format. And to start off with the first story, I guess it's going to go to me. While we're talking about craft and landing and manned spaceflight, how would you like to own a piece of manned spaceflight? Sounds kind of enticing, right? Maybe even something from, let's say, a Soyuz mission, or from one of the early days, or from maybe Apollo 11? Well, there's actually an auction company which is doing just that. The company called RR Auction is having an online auction which starts May 16th and runs through May 23rd, selling some interesting pieces of space history. They have items from all of the actual moon landing missions as well as a couple of the other manned Apollo missions. You've got Apollo Soyuz, Skylab, Shuttle, some Hubble things. You've got a lot of interesting, even going back to some of the early aviation stuff, all the way back to Project Mercury. Now, some of the pieces that are interesting that they have, which I should add, they've got some cue cards and some flight plans that were flown aboard Apollo 11, and uh, minimum bid, unfortunately, I'm going to have to say on those, is $1,000. So if you're a little more well-off than we are here, please feel free to bid on some of this. We've got some other signed memorabilia from all the astronauts, and on top of some of the actual space-worn gear, one of the pieces that piqued my interest the most, at least, was the Apollo 11 Command Module Rotation Hand Controller Grip. The actual one that was flown in flight, which the minimum bid is starting at $10,000. And keep in mind, as of this recording date, bidding hasn't started yet. So you've got a whole bunch of interesting space memorabilia here. Minimum bid is $100. Some of them are obviously a little bit more. But it's definitely worth checking out because there may be some things that you want to pick up from some of your favorite missions. I'm not too sure about Neil Armstrong's EKG, though, uh, which they which is in this packet. Um, I, I kind of I, I'm I'm trying to really really wonder what the I, I'm I'm on the fence on that one. I really am. How so? Because to me, it's just a piece of paper with some of his medical readings. It's not like it's saying some other information such as the Apollo 9 transcripts that were released for Apollo 10. I don't remember which, which talked about bathroom matters. But, you know, I, I don't see what's so wrong about something like that. I think it's, you know, interesting to see just either how nervous or more likely how calm he was during the entire thing. I don't know. It's a little intrusive. <laughs> That's just me. 
And I still remember the the medical mutiny. You know, the, even on Apollo thirteen, there was a medical mutiny. Everybody just kind of tearing their their med stuff off. And you know, I, I remember with all the the line from the film, which I don't know if it was really said or not, um, that he he just didn't want the entire Western world to know how his kidneys were functioning, and just kind of tore off all the all the medical telemetry stuff. So uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. That, that's I'm I'm not sure about that one. I'm 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 a little on the fence. <laughs> well, what about one of the constant wear garments from Buzz Aldrin? <laughs> I'm not gonna touch that. Because <laughs> I'm not even joking. It is a minimum bid so far of a thousand. I'm not gonna touch that. <laughs> <laughs> well, just keep in mind that there are people who are paying to physically touch it. You may not touch it, but there are More people who pay good too. money, too. And if you do have the money and are interested in taking a look and buying something from the auction or willing to donate it to any of us here at Talking Space, you know, it's a long shot, but we can always throw it in there, we'll have a link to that in the description and in our show notes. Alrighty then. So, with that, it's now on to Mark. What do you have for us this time, Mark? Well, I'm going to counter uh, some of what you just said by making a request to people that rather than spend money on space memorabilia now, do it later. And instead of that right now, let's take one last look because the Rocket Hub campaign for Astronaut Abbey is nearing its closure for fundraising. And it's easy to find if you go to rockethub.com. And you just go to the search box and you either type in Soyuz Adventure or Astronaut Abbey. And one of the graphics on the Rocket Hub page, it says um, Fuel Astronaut Abbey Soyuz Adventure Project and Ignite Passions for Dreaming Big. First stop Russia, next stop Mars. And more importantly, support Astronaut Abbey's space project to inspire future generations. And if you question what this is all about as far as the funds that are being asked for, the fundraising, if you go to astronautabbey.com and you go to the search box on that page and you type in budget, it will take you to a post that uh, Abby has put in there that says, why $35,000? Here's my budget breakdown. And you'll see a breakdown on what she's hoping to raise and what the categories of funds are going to provide in her outreach effort that she will have as a result of this uh, Soyuz launch experience that she will have at Baikonur. And she's already done a number of, of outreach-type efforts. I couldn't even begin to enumerate them, but she's had some Google Hangouts with Luca Parmitano, her astronaut uh, sponsor, allowing her to even uh, contemplate going to Russia for the launch, and also many other events. So take a look at it. She's getting national attention on this. Let's give her some international support. So please take a look at it. I know you've heard me mention this several times, but I think this is far, far beyond a, a trip for one person and the effect it's going to have on their life because of her outreach efforts that she'll be making from this point onward. Yeah, I think, Mark, um, we had a, uh, well, we, we interviewed her. We, we had our, our fir- her first interview <laughs> was on this program, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and she's done a bunch since then. Every now and then I see information about uh, news and morning shows and radio programs that she's on and uh, many, many Internet uh, resources, people that are talking to her. And uh, go to that rockethub.com page. And that, that one of those patches alone is worth the, one of the, the, is worth the support as well. Wow, that, that one, the, the one uh, uh, patch with the Orion on it that she has uh, as, as one of the premiums there. That, is, that looks so cool. I, I can't wait to get my hands on one of those. <laughs> yes, indeed. It, it's something definitely worth supporting. And if you follow her on Twitter at Astronaut Abbey, she's been updating pretty much every step of the way and talking to people about this. And even uh, Astronaut Luca Parmitano, who's been pretty much her sponsor through this whole thing, is getting her to the launch, has been by her side and backing her the whole way. It's, it's something 
that's definitely worth checking up and listening to our interview if you have any doubts about spending any money on it. And please, the auction can wait. That starts the 16th. This is more urgent. Go support Astronaut Abbey. Sorry to throw that in without warning, Sawyer. If you're interested and if you're uh, willing to, to give a little for something that's going to make a difference for many, uh, you'll, be, you'll be able to find it quite easily, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. And, and again, she's a, a rather elegant young lady and, and we'll be going ahead and, and talking about this experience to uh, a whole bunch of other, other school kids and uh, trying to go ahead and enlighten them as far as what, uh, what the whole experience was like and, and, and trying to bring a piece of that to them. So it's, it's really a worthy cause, Mark. Thanks for bringing that up. Bringing that up. Thanks, everybody, for your time. Yes, indeed. So please go out onto your favorite search engine or favorite social media site and give her your support. All right. So moving on next, it goes to Gene, and uh, it also goes to another man who we uh, who seems to be in the media a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, to go ahead and um, uh, put everything in the perspective, we were just talking about Mars or bust. Um, there was an article uh, from a new scientist. Uh, dated uh, May 8th, and this was in reference to uh, the Humans to Mars Summit that occurred in Washington, D.C. also last week. And one of the things that was brought up was that uh, Mars dust could be uh, <laughs> dangerous to, uh, to human health and could go ahead and uh, really, really gum up the works up there on on Mars, so if you're trying to go ahead and send humans to the red red planet, you, you this is one of the problems you're going to have have to overcome. Uh, now, lab studies had suggested a while back ago that Mars dust could be a, a health hazard because it uh, contains very very fine grained sil- silica materials, which are well kind of co- sort of common on Mars. Um, if you this kind of sort of rings a bell a little bit, if you recall. The Apollo astronauts had somewhat similar to the same thing with lunar dust, where it just got everywhere and it was just, uh, you know, in, into everything. You could not clean up anything. Um, and but 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 this little article here is suggesting that this, uh, if you were to go ahead and breathe this stuff in, uh, since Mar- since the Mars dust also contains perchlorates, we discovered that a while back ago. If you go ahead and breathe that stuff in, you could theoretically have uh, what miners used to call black lung disease, uh, which is, um, yeah, I mean, it could also not only be harmful to the lung, but the thyroid gland and everything else. So uh, it's it's not really good. You got to go ahead and and, and try to figure out how you're going to deal with this, how, how are you going to go ahead, decontaminate the suits, um, what modifications do you have to make to your, 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 your habitat on Mars, uh, what do you do if it gets into the filtration systems. Uh, these are just, just really, really big questions that one has to ask. And the only thing that I thought of as I was reading this article was um, – a lot of people, and including uh, uh, Sawyer, the, the gentleman you were uh, alluding to, uh, and that is the second human being to walk on the face of the moon, uh, Buzz Aldrin, uh, are really starting to, to get into this and this this one-way trip to Mars thing. And this keeps on coming back to that because, good Lord, this was the very first topic we talked about on this particular program. And... Um, I'm I'm still saying that that is a bad idea for Mars uh, because of little gotchas that we're finding out now like this. Uh, you you got to go ahead and overcome this or your, your 40 or, or 50 settlers or whatever it is that Mars One wants to send to, uh, uh, to Mars on what supposedly would be the biggest reality television show that, that you've ever seen. They're going to have to deal with these problems, and they're going to have to deal with all of this. And if you don't have a way of solving that problem, your settler, you know, your your reality show is 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 not going to be pretty. Um, so I, I hope the Mars One folks are listening, 
And I hope anybody else that Art is determining to to go ahead and and do one of these crash courses to Mars because this is it. This is this is uh, you know you know this is really cool. This is you know the pioneering spirit. You know go west, go west, young man, and all this. Um, you know that seems to be the spirit with all all these one way trip to Martin Mars folks. Uh, it's not like the the, the west you know the, the the western frontier here here in the United States. Uh, where all that you know, where all this quote pioneering spirit came from. Difference was there was a lot of mo- motivation to go out west. There was this little thing called gold uh, that that supposedly, if you found it, you were going to go ahead and and strike it rich. Um, you know, so, or there was just I mean, grant you there was a promise for a better life, but but uh, you're you're talking about in, in the case of Mars, you're, you're you're talking about going to a dust bowl, guys. You're not talking about going to, uh, you know, going somewhere lush and green where you can plant and and so on. Uh, so I, I, every time I, I talk about, I, I think about the, these one-way trip to Mars advocates. I I say, you know, slow down, Sparky. You know, you've really got to go ahead and really think this out. And this is just one of the one of the gotchas. that are looming on the Mar- Martian surface. There are probably many more out there. We don't really comprehend yet and we haven't really even found yet and this is the job of our robotic emissaries to do that that's why we had you know that's why we had spirit and spirit that's why we've got opportunity that's why we've got curiosity and that's why we've got another rover plan to go uh in the 2020 time frame so to to try to you know eliminate all the gotchas so Maybe you know. And again, I'll bring it right back to to what we were talking about before. Sorry, in, in the beginning of the program, um, maybe Chris has field is right. Maybe we've got to go ahead and do this in a very slow, methodical way, so we understand what we're getting ourselves into. Um, this is just an example of what we're getting ourselves into, and we have to learn a way around it. It's, it, it's interesting, you know, uh, I, Buzz Aldrin is an interesting character, if you don't mind me going back to him, and the, you know, the one-way trip to Mars is something we talked about f- four years ago, and still there, and then you've got um, Mars One and all these projects now, it it seems like if we're talking about going to Mars, you know, you've got all these problems and everything, but it seems like at this point, commercials leading more of a way than... Uh, than any government agency. We can have that debate. <laughs> I know there's a lot of debates that could go off of this one. Oh yeah, I mean, well well here here's here's the thing when I say about commercial. When I hear the word commercial, I think okay, business and what's a business solely there to do? To make a profit. There is no profit in exploration for exploration's sake, period. There just isn't there. Um, I mean, finding the the background, you know, the Big Bang background radiation that was found at Bell Labs at Murray Hill. Um, wonderful breakthrough, beautiful. Ken, did did they profit from that? Don't know. Um, I'd have to look, find out, and. And and see what uh, what the data is, but you never really really have a full honest to god full blown profit from basic research and basic geology and all that and so on. Um, so when I hear commercial, I, I immediately marry commercial and profit together because that's the only re- reason why a business is going to stay in business. It's to make money. And if there's no money to be made, then they're not going to do it. And Gwen Shotwell said it herself. I mean, she got questions during CRS2 about SpaceX's involvement in the Inspiration One project, Dennis Tito's project, which is going to send a uh, a cup one couple around around uh, around Mars, uh, 501 days. Um, she was asked if SpaceX was involved in that. She said no, but. Um, if uh, Dennis has got money, we'll gladly take it. You know, so again, they are in it for the money. The only entity that could really make the decision to do basic research 
for basic research's sake and pure exploration are probably government entities. And that's why it's taking so long because we've all got to – everybody's got to be on the, the same you know, the same wavelength. And, uh, and right now, you know, f- as far as Mars is concerned, mm, we might have some agendas here and there. So we've, we've really got to get our act together and we've got to get the commitments together. And right now I don't think we have it. Well, all the things you mentioned, all the questions that you brought up are, you know, <laughs> interesting. It's a lot of information in there. So it, it, that's why I kind of switched topics. There's so much to talk about with that. And so much so that we may even have to continue on another episode, make it three episodes in a row. Yeah, <laughs> agreed. The reason I say that is because that brings us to the end of our second trip around the table. And with that, we are now going to move on to our third trip, which this segment is all about you guys. This is an entirely listener-driven third part of the show. And the first thing that we're going to start off with is last week we proposed a question to you about your thoughts on the idea of us going to an asteroid or us going to Mars. Well, we heard from you, and we thank you. One of you actually decided to send us in an MP3 file, and uh, that's our good friend Peter Johnson, who has another podcast, which he'll talk about in his recording. So um, let's not go any further. Let's hear his thoughts on the debate from last week. Hi, Sawyer, Mark, Gene. It's Peter Johnson here from the extended program, the aerospace program, out of Europe. Um, Just listening to your latest episode and thinking about should we go to an asteroid or should we go to Mars or should we stay in low Earth orbit, I think it's a really interesting uh, dichotomy really. Um, Personally, I think we need to do more of low Earth orbit. I think we've got to go back to the moon. I think we've got to test some new technologies and then we've got to shoot for Mars. I think there's loads of um, interesting uh, concepts out there in in terms of uh, organizations like Mars One and some of the ideas some people think are a bit crazy um, but sometimes you need people with a bit of vision to uh, shoot for the stars as they say but for me the whole issue is a societal one I think in the 60s and 70s when we had real direction in our programs uh, going to the moon exploring space exploring other planets Um, Voyager and all those wonderful things we're seeing and reaping the rewards of now. We don't seem to have so much of that uh, these days. I I recently visited a fantastic facility in the UK, the RAL Space Facility, which will feature in our uh, next programme. And there is just the most amazing people there, the most amazing skills, experience and scientific technology that I think... Um, combined with all the other uh, science and technology we have on this world, can achieve whatever we want, really. So if Mars is the objective, we can do it. However, the difference between now and what went before is a societal one. And that is that in the 60s and 70s, and even some would say the 80s, we had really, really strong leadership. And I think... Humans are naturally group animals that require a leader to stand out and give us direction. But what we've got now is what I think of as democratic leadership, where leaders don't lead. They converse, they uh, agree, they gain votes from their peers. And so because of that, we have a mishmash of ways forward. So for me, we need some strong leadership. We need to get some direction and then we need to shoot for Mars. If we don't, not our grandchildren, not even our grandchildren's grandchildren, but future generations after that are going to be stuck on this planet with all the challenges that we've got. So for me, shoot for Mars. And again, thank you very much to Peter Johnson from Aviation Extended for sending that in to us. Now, um, I think it's time we respond. Peter, you are my hero. I have been saying that for the longest time uh, as far as leadership is concerned. Uh, I, I totally agree with, with your, uh, with, with your uh, pronouncement there uh, as far as uh, having you know, the, the, the will to do it. Uh, you know, Kennedy set us on the moon path. I mean, grant you um, uh, the race for, uh, for the lunar surface – 
was essentially a substitute for a shooting war. Um, but uh, uh, again, that was born out of a strong, you know, leadership here. Uh, Kennedy said, "Let's go for the moon." We did it, and and the last real commitment we had by any president was probably, uh, and, and I'm going to go out on a limb, was probably Ronald Reagan that said, let's build the ISS and let's do it within a decade. Well, obviously, we didn't get it done in a decade, but we did get it done. Do I think this asteroid mission is going to go anywhere? Maybe. I think it, it, it's ill-timed. But, uh, I mean, because uh, but just because we're in the second term of President Obama's administration, and, uh, you know, by the time, you know, things get together and the, and the project really, really starts taking root, there'll be, you know, by 2016, there's going to be a new president. And that new president may have a different goal in mind. So, uh, but, but Peter, a lot of the things you said, you know, really, really are, are just absolutely dead on um, as, far as, as far as leadership and as far as, uh, you know, goal-driven programs. Uh, you know, so again, uh, hats off to you. Thanks for your for sh- for sharing your thoughts. And uh, folks, again, if you want to uh, go ahead and I'll give a plug to Aviation Extended here too. Myself, go ahead and and look them up on uh, on iTunes and look them up on the web. They've got some really good uh, content over there if you want to learn about uh, what's going on not only in aviation in the UK but all over the place. So again, Peter, again, thanks for sharing your thoughts. Yes, indeed. It's always great to hear from you guys, and as we've said in the past, you can always send us an MP3 file, and um, I love what Peter said about this as well, as how he was driving along the road while he was listening to it, and he pulled over while it was fresh on his mind, so that way he could record it and get it to us, and uh, not wait till a little later and then accidentally forget about it, so... Thank you again to Peter for sending that in, and of course, obligatory plug for his podcast as well, which is great. I just started listening after he, he chatted with me a little bit. Alrighty then, on top of that, we've got another email in our inbox from our good friend Evan, Evan Burton. And uh, this one, his first one was a suggestion for the Zulu or GMT time, which we're going to do our best to do now. And uh, we understand, obviously, just based off of the comments we've got sent that it's a very international audience, including Australia, Europe, so we'll do our best to manage our times. And the second part of his email says, on episode 510, there was the remarks about the green meteor. Remind me of seeing Skylab re-enter. I was living in Perth, Western Australia, and watched Skylab re-enter and break up over the Darling Rangers, starting as a small bright light, then expanding horizontally across the sky in reds and greens. I'll never forget that sight. Still enjoying the show. Keep up the good work. Which, mentioning that, we are approaching a anniversary for that, I think, right? Yeah, we had uh, there was actually an event. It was actually today. There was an event in uh, uh, at uh, NASA headquarters in, in Washington D.C. profiling Skylab and its, its long history. Skylab was the very first uh, space station built by the United States. It was essentially the hollowed out uh, third stage of the Saturn V, really. Uh, but modified uh, tremendously, uh, and it it taught us a lot about uh, uh, building a space station and, and taught us a lot about how to fix things. Unfortunately, um, Skylab, when it was launched, uh, it, it had its problems. Um, the uh, one of its solar arrays, they'd had two. Uh, wing-like solar arrays at either end of it, and one of them was torn off during launch. There was another uh, uh, micrometeorite shield, which was also torn off, which also helped regulate the temperature inside the the laboratory. So uh, the first crew uh, really, really had their hands full to go ahead and and effect repairs. But as uh, Pete Conrad declared during the ascent, we could fix anything. And they sure did, and and uh, that first crew really, really got Skylab up and running. Uh, so I, again, uh, it was it was kind of sad to lose it. Um, unfortunately, Skylab was uh, uh, due to be uh, reboosted, oddly enough, by a space shuttle in 1979. Uh, Columbia was going to go ahead and pay a call, strap two uh, boosters at the on the end of it, on either end of it, and boost it up. And there was a plan actually to continue using Skylab during the shuttle era, if you can imagine that. Uh, unfortunately, um, it, it did not, the drag, the atmospheric drag on it uh, was a little bit 
more drastic than than everybody kind of thought. And uh, because shuttle is having its developmental delays, um, we didn't make the uh, uh, the uh, the date to go ahead and and save Skylab. And unfortunately, it entered entered. Uh, uh, in the uh, area of Australia, and I guess uh, that's that's what our dear friend Evan had the, I guess the honor of of taking a look uh, at and seeing this this Amer- seeing American space debris essentially fall on Australia. Uh, it was really scary though for 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 a while there with Skylab because we really didn't know where the heck it was going to land, and uh, uh, we really struggled to make sure that it had. Uh, Re-entered uh, in a in, you know at least in, a, in an ocean area, and unfortunately uh, some of the uh, the debris did hit Australia. So uh, you know again this that was also one of the big pieces of uh, oddly enough here we go back to back to, back to space debris again. But it was again the first encounter we really had of trying to get a large object down, and we didn't really have a lot of plan to do that. So. Um, Evan, again, thanks a lot for for your uh, for your note and for invoking a lot of a lot of memories. I followed Skylab quite closely when I was little. Yeah, there's some funny stories about some debris falling in Australia and a bill that was paid with a radio station. There's a lot of fun stories surrounding it, but it, it was an interesting, um, I guess, precursor to the technology that we use today in space stations. So. You know, it, it it was a great learning experience. I think is the best way to put it. Yeah, it was a great learning experience for technology and for the people. Uh, you know, you have to go ahead and pick the right personalities for long-term spaceflight. We found out a lot about that too. Oh, just a little. Again, more fun stories you can look up. <laughs> All right, now before we go, this one isn't necessarily listener submitted, but it's a third story that um, I think we want to talk a couple things about, and uh, that is the Space Shuttle Atlantis. We got two stories about that quickly. One is that the payload bay doors for the Space Shuttle Atlantis were opened, and keep in mind, these were not designed to be opened manually on 1G. These were meant to be opened with the power of the shuttle in orbit. So it took a little bit of an interesting task, and there is a great animated image out there of the entire process, so that's worth looking at. And today is also an anniversary of Space Shuttle Atlantis, right, Gene? STS-132, uh, uh, the, uh, and it's also, uh, I want to give a little bit of a salute to the folks that uh, uh, went ahead and, and accompanied uh, me and a whole bunch of other folks, about 150 other folks, at the Kennedy Space Center about three years ago. Uh, this week um, to uh, to view uh, the Atlantis launch, uh, and f- uh, one of uh, I believe uh, the uh, the prime cargo for Atlantis on that mission was the Rosviet module, which is where uh, tonight's crew departed from. So uh, just a just a little bit of symmetry there, but uh, yeah, um, it was a it was a great. Uh, a great event, NASA. During these, uh, that's this is when they used to be called NASA tweet ups. Now they're called NASA socials. But if you do have a an opportunity to go to one, I really say you go ahead and you register, you roll the dice, and see if you get in, because it is well worth the time and the energy. Yeah, uh, Mark, you and I have been veterans of, of of a few of these, and they are so worth the time and so worth the effort to try to get into. Uh, there's, I think there's another one. Uh, I know there, there's one scheduled for uh, for Landsat. The registration for that one is closed, uh, but um, uh, I, there are more coming up. I hope, you know, budget permitting. Uh, I, I would really, really suggest you go ahead and and, and look into uh, into getting in there because it's the, these things are just amazing. Yes, indeed. It's certainly worth checking out, and uh, the irony of the first last flight of Atlantis. <laughs> and keep in mind that exhibit is set to open at the Kennedy Space Center June 29th. All right, and we thank everyone for submitting their stuff to us. If you have any other things you want to send to us, our email address is mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. Any comments, questions, concerns, written or MP3. You also have our Facebook, facebook.com slash talkingspace, and our Twitter, which is twitter.com slash talkingspace. 
With that, that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everyone who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thanks, Sawyer. And a quick shout-out to uh, Zachary McCauley, who's uh, he's a really big fan of the show, and his, uh, his mother was taken ill uh, rather suddenly just before Mother's Day. She's uh, in ICU now at, at a local hospital, but I just want to go ahead and give him a shout-out and say we're thinking about you, bud. Yes, indeed. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. See you next time. Indeed, we hope to see you next time, but until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Mm-hmm.